Hey, this morning uh, we are uh, continuing our series entitled The uh, Elephant in the Room. We started the uh, series last week and we talked about, talked about racism. And um, it, is, um, it was interesting as, as I was being led by the Lord to preach about racism and then preach about homosexuality that I had made the comment that uh, back in 1965, if a pastor stood up and said that he was going to preach on homosexuality and racism, most people would have said, well, the homosexuality, that one's pretty easy. Racism, man, that's a, that's a firestorm of a topic. Fifty years later, we can stand before you and preach a sermon on racism, and most people would say, well, that's got some challenges to it, but for the most part, we got an understanding. But now homosexuality, that's, that's a different different one. That one's a little, a little tougher. So it's amazing what's happened in our culture and in our world in these last 50 years. Uh, most of you know, and I, I thank you for the 6,000 emails and texts I got, that, um, uh, that this week a federal judge ruled that Alabama's ban on same-sex marriage is unconstitutional. Uh, many of you thought that uh, I was in cahoots with the judge and I knew what was coming down and we planned this, but we did not. And it's brought a uh, firestorm of opinions on both sides. In the last few months, there's also been a great deal of discussion about what the Constitution says about freedom of religion. And it seems like our government is standing up for freedom of religion in some faith. But when homosexuality intersects with Christian beliefs, it seems that Christians are to be silent and check their beliefs at the door before they enter their business. Now, these are some important topics and they will be the subject of next week's sermon, okay? So we're going to talk about same-sex marriage and uh, freedom of religion, those things. But that was never my goal for this Sunday. Our goal this Sunday is to just look at the issue of homosexuality. At the same time, as we look at it and look at what the Bible says, what my hope is that today we will see what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. Is there hope for someone that's struggling with same-sex addiction? And then how should friends, family, and church respond to those that are going through that struggle? I think one thing that needs to uh, be kept in mind is that you take something like same-sex attraction and you need to put a face to it. It's individuals, it's people. And it's not just one, um, one big topic subject that we sit over here and we either throw darts at it or else we embrace it, either one. We have to begin to put a person's face on it. A few weeks ago, I went to the movies and saw the movie Imitation Games. And uh, Imitation Game is a true story about uh, during World War II when the British were trying to crack the code for um, Hitler's code uh, for what they used to be able to maneuver their U-boats and their ships and their airplanes and where they were going to attack. And the British believed that they could ever crack that code, then they would be in a position to know where Hitler was going to attack and then they could prevent that attack from happening. They brought some great minds together, and one of the people they brought was a man by the name of Alan Turing, who was a mathematician. And throughout this movie, you're following him, and he's a guy who's brilliant, but he doesn't really work well with others, likes to be on his own, and he thinks he can figure this out. And at the end of the movie, in essence, what he does is he creates the first computer. And sure enough, through this computer, they are able to break the code. 
But in the midst of the movie, you also discover there's another struggle that he has, and he struggles with homosexuality. And so as you watch him struggle through that, and then you see him in his brilliance as he's putting together this this amazing machine to be able to crack this code, you walk away from the movie saying, so is this man a war hero? You would think yes. He probably shortened the war by a number of years, saved hundreds of thousands of lives because of us being able to crack that code. But then you also look over here and say, well, now he's dealing with something that's called homosexuality, and and we believe that's a sin. And all of a sudden, you find yourself kind of going back and forth on here, and it's not like going back or forth, is it right or wrong? What it did was it personalized it. And as you followed this character, man, you were cheering for him, and you were hoping that that he he would be successful in what he did. But then at the same time, you saw this other struggle that he had. So it's my hope that today, as we listen to this message, that we keep those things in mind. We keep in mind as we walk through and see what the Bible has to say, but then let's also keep in mind we're talking about individuals, individuals whom God loves. So stay with me. We've got a lot of material. We'd be out of here about 2 o'clock, and so um, just, just, just stay with me. Are you ready? All right. Let me give you some foundational truths. As we start this message, these are foundational truths uh, that we're going to build on. Number one, we all have battles, and we all need the grace of Jesus. We all have battles. We all have battles, but we have the same hearts. And so your battles may be different than my battles, but every one of us has got battles. And we've all got the same heart. And because of that, we're all in need of the grace of Jesus every day. Foundational truth, number one. Number two. Second one is your sexual preference does not define you. We are living in a culture to where they have elevated sexuality to say this is who you are. So when a person says a gay, a lesbian, bisexual, it's like, this is who I am. This is fundamental to who I am. But you know, your sexual attractions are not foundational to your identity. You are so much more than that. You are defined by God who created you in his own image. And your identity should be in Jesus Christ who took all of your sins and died so that you might become the righteousness of God. You are far more than your sexuality. So don't let your sexual uh, preference define who you are. You are so much more than that. And the third foundational truth is this, and that is God created us as sexual beings, thus he has the right to define sexuality. It's not the culture that defines it. It's not Hollywood that defines it. It's not media. It's not political parties. It's God. He created us, and he created sexuality. He should also be the one that defines it sexuality. So keeping those three truths in mind, let's take a look at the Bible and homosexuality. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? So let's look at some of the passages. First of all, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. In the Levitical law, it says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So a man should not lay with another man. Also Leviticus 20, 13, I don't have that verse up there. It pretty well says the same thing. What it says is that homosexuality is morally wrong. Okay? It's pretty clear. But when it says it is an abomination, this is not the only sin that is listed as an abomination. 
In the book of Leviticus, it also says adultery and incest is an abomination. If you look in the book of Proverbs, it says deceitful speech, pride, and murder are equally abominable to God. So we need to understand homosexual sin is not in a category of its own in this regard. Yes, it says it's an abomination, but it's not the only one listed in Scripture. So you go from the Old Testament and you move into the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, and if you've got your Bibles, I'd like for you to open to that passage, Romans chapter 1. There's a lot in that passage, but there's a whole lot that we need to cover, so we're just going to give a cursory look at this passage. But what you need to understand, starting in the 19th, starting, excuse me, in the 18th verse, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He gives a general statement that as people began to suppress the truth, as people began to live lives that are unrighteous, then there will be the wrath of God. And he talks about getting all the way up to verse 23 about people exchanging the glory of God for, for unnatural things over here, for just, for just the, the, uh, the idols that resemble men and things. And, and so it just talks about how we turn away from God. And you come to verse 24 and it says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Man came to a point to where it says, I'm going to be worshiping what I see, not what I don't see. I'm going to worship the creation and not the creator. And it says, and God gave them up to that. And then you come to the verse that a lot of people quote over here. and You come to verses 26 and 27. Keeping that in mind, people are turning from God. It says, for this reason... God gave them up the dishonorable passions. In essence, God says, I'm going to give you what you want. You want to keep going down this pathway? I'm going to allow you to do that. I'm going to give you up to these. And it says, for the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What he said was we just, you started heading down this this road of, of lust. He said, I'm just giving you up to it. Just giving it up to you. And when he did, one of the first things he said was that homosexuality is unnatural. They gave up the natural for the unnatural. That means it is, you look at the fixed parts of creation and it says this is unnatural. So you can't say, none of us can say, well, God just made me this way. No, all of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for things that God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. And when I take, when I take things of this world that are opposite of what God's teachings are, and I embrace them, and they begin to warp who I am, I can't sit there and say, well, God, that's how you made me. No, it is that my fallen nature has taken that and has embraced that. And all of us struggle with that in one way or another. For some, it's same-sex attraction. For others, it's anger. For some, it may be greed. For some, it may be lust. These are things that we struggle with. And the bottom line is that as we reject God, we find ourselves craving what we were not naturally designed to do. 
and things that are contrary to God's will and God's word. And this is true of those in homosexuality. This is true of people that are heterosexuals. That at times we will embrace the things that are contrary to God's word. And what is amazing is, is a lot of time this verse clearly shows that homosexuality is wrong. But everybody loves to stop here. But it keeps on going. Verse 28, it says, and since they did not see, this is talking about this culture, this, this society. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul lists all these things. And he says, because we went away from God, he just gave us up to these things. And though they know God's desire that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is a society or culture that turns its back on God. And so in the midst of pointing out that that homosexuality is not right, it also covers all these other things that are a result of when we turn our backs on God and try to live our lives contrary to what God's word has to say. Well, then Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And you're looking in 1 Corinthians 6. As he's writing to this church, who's got a lot of problems. they got a lot of issues. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What he said in this passage is, is that when you go out there and, and begin to go so far away from God, he says, you will not be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And so when we look at that and we see in those who practice homosexuality, we said, man, that's wrong. And it is wrong. And it's got some, uh, it's got some bad consequences to that. And we're not to sit there and water down that as a sin, but at the same time, you don't elevate it above everything else because he says, then thieves and greedy and drunkards and swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, we just have a tendency at times to look at this. And if somebody came to us and they said, you know, I've, I've embezzled a lot of money from my company and I'm feeling really bad about it. We embrace them and pray for them and say, good, come on in, brother. We're going to help you. Or it talks about uh, those that, uh, that are drunkards or dealing with alcohol and, and they come to us and we want to embrace them. But then we have a tendency that when someone comes and says, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, it's like almost we back off and say, oh, that's the sin of sins. And it's not. Nowhere in Scripture has it elevated that sin. But then we've got some good news, and that is homosexuality is not inescapable. Because in the very next verse, in chapter, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, he says, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were greedy. Some of you were revilers. Some of you were homosexuals. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So however ingrained it may be that someone's behavior, homosexual conduct, 
is not inescapable. It is possible for someone that is living and practicing a gay lifestyle to be made new by God. Temptations and feelings may still linger, but you're now a new creation in Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this. But he gives you hope. He says some of you were in that same situation. And the last passage is found in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. He says, now we know that the law is good. And if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. We've got the law. Well, the law helps those that are lawless to know what is right and what is wrong. And he says, for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. See, look right there. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And he's saying all this laundry list of things, he says they're wrong because they're contrary to sound doctrine. And so, again, they do not conform to the life that Christians are now to lead. They go against the grain of this new identity in Christ. And there's a lot of things in here. And everything in here we would say is wrong, is wrong, is wrong. And one of those is men who practice homosexuality. So, what does this tell us? Out of all of these verses, I want to narrow it down to two things. Number one, the first thing is this. Homosexuality is a sin against God. Homosexuality is a sin against God. Scripture is clear that it is. But number two is this. Homosexual sin is not in a category of its own. And this is where we get here and we believe that there are sins and then there's homosexual sin. And there's hope for this and then there's no hope for this. That is just not true. There's nothing in Scripture that made this, this sin, to be above or different than any other. Its consequences are very difficult. And its consequences that that bring a lot of pain and hurt. But the sin itself, as you see, whenever this is mentioned, there are also a litany of other sins that have been listed to where, where the writer of the Scripture is saying these are all against God and we need to deal with them. God is opposed to all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. You just need to know that. So whether heterosexuals are having affairs, cheating on their wife, that's a sin. And then homosexuality is a sin. It is sex outside of marriage. And the Bible says that that is wrong. Now, I'm just going to deal with a couple of of questions that people usually will ask. Here's the first question. The first question is, well, some say if two partners are committed to each other and faithful, how can we say that is wrong? You know, like when you watch Modern Family, uh, you know, those two guys, they, uh, they're fun and everything, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're fun to, to talk to. So is their relationship okay? Does God say that that, that is okay, that that relationship is, is fine? Um, well, the answer to, the, to that is, is no. You, you cannot sit there and say because someone's faithful in a relationship that is wrong that all of a sudden that relationship is right. Just throw out and give you an example biblically. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, 
Paul's writing about another situation. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, okay? And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. What he said is in the church, a man, most likely in a second marriage, he's got a wife who would be the stepmother to to his son. They are now together. And so a son has married his stepmother. He says, that's sick. Yeah. Well, that was going on in the church. But here's the deal. Is when they told Paul about that, Paul did not come back and say, what is their level of commitment? Are they being faithful? Are they getting along? No. He said, that's not the issue. Whether or not they're in a long-term committed relationship is beside the point. The fact remains, it's wrong and it shouldn't be happening. Consistency and faithfulness while sinning no way diminish the sin faithfulness demonstrated in a prohibited relationship does not make it less sinful so if the relationship is wrong from a biblical standpoint then no much no matter how much faithfulness or consistency they have with each other it's still a wrong relationship it does not overcome the fact that God, God calls it sinful. Well, the next thing that we hear is about Jesus, and that is, hey, Jesus didn't say anything. But Jesus never mentions homosexuality, so how can it be wrong? There are a lot of things that Jesus didn't specify, but yet we know that they're wrong. But let me give you a passage to think about, and it's found in Mark chapter 7. And in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. David, go back one slide to the first part of that, of that verse over there. Come in, come thoughts, come sexual immorality. This word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, where we get our word pornography. And what it is, it's a catch-all. It's a catch-all word for all of immorality. Jesus didn't say anything about incest. He didn't say anything about bestiality. And he didn't say anything specific about homosexuality. But he takes all of those and he puts them under one category, which is sexual immorality. And so when he speaks against that, he's speaking about what it was talked about in the Old Testament that laid out. This is what is sexual immorality. So generally, Jesus does speak to that. So... That's what the Bible says. So let me go to the next section, and that is hope for those that are struggling with same-sex attraction. Hope for those that are struggling with same-sex attraction. Now, in our society, it is, um, I don't know how to best phrase this. I don't want to be misunderstood, but Sometimes in our society, all of a sudden, when you're younger and, uh, and it's like you enjoy, if you're a girl, you enjoy being with, with a girlfriend or your boy, you enjoy being with a guy over here, they, they began to tell you, oh, you must have same-sex attraction feelings because you're just being friends with them. You know, some of those things are just normal developmental. Just guys like to hang with guys and girls like to be with girls. And then there comes a point when guys realize that, that girls don't have cooties and, and then they can say, okay, uh, may, maybe I can at least be in the same room with them over there. And, and, and guys, they think, finally realize that they just don't do these weird body function noises. But that never changes. But, you know, they, they, they just, they're finally, there comes that point. 
And, and so I hope we can just be realistic in there. There are developmental stages. But there are also times, and I've read testimonies of people, that as they were growing up, they felt they had a same-sex attraction. And they struggled a little with it. And what they came back to say is, if you'd had that struggle, that didn't mean that all of a sudden that will be your orientation forever. There are developmental stages that you go through. And that you may have had that, but that doesn't mean all of a sudden I am going to be that way forever. No, that may have just gone and passed. Now, it is not unchristian to experience same-sex attraction. Listen to me. What marks you out as a Christian is not that you ever experience these feelings, but how do you respond to them when you do? There will be temptations that will come into our lives. And when the temptation comes, that is not unchristian for a temptation to begin to tempt you. Where the problem comes is how do you respond to that? What, what do you choose? What lifestyle direction will you take? And so a person that struggles with same-sex attraction, I believe they have three options to figure out how will they respond to that. What direction will they take on their lifestyle? Two responses are biblical and one is not. The first one is this. The first is heterosexual marriage, which is biblical. And what that means is that some people, when they struggle with same-sex attraction, then they come to a point to where they say, you know what, I, I, I can suppress that, I, I find, find one of the opposite sex, fall in love with them, build a family, and have a biblical marriage. And there are a number of people that have done that, okay? Heterosexual marriage, it's biblical. Number two is, or choose singleness and celibacy. That is biblical. And you read in the scripture where the apostle Paul says that singleness is a gift, and as a person is single, it says they have more opportunities to be able to serve the Lord than someone is married because they have less responsibilities. They're not taking care of a spouse and children things. And, and they're like wide open to be used by the Lord. And then there's celibacy. You know, what we need to keep in mind is that when Jesus talks about an alternative to marriage, he doesn't mention cohabitation. He doesn't mention same-sex partnerships or any other kind of sexual relationship. He mentions a eunuch who chose a celibate life. And he says that is the only godly alternative to, to a um, heterosexual marriage. So you either choose heterosexual marriage, singleness and celibacy, or your third choice is the homosexual lifestyle, which will take you down a destructive path in which is opposite of what God's Word says. Every person that deals with same-sex attraction, they've got those three options. And they make that determination. Which way will we go? What direction will we take? Well, let me give some hope for people that struggle with same-sex attraction. And this is where you want to put a face on individuals. Number one, same-sex attraction does not disqualify you from God. Same-sex attraction does not disqualify you from God. Those that are struggling with same-sex attraction can feel doubly ashamed. You're not just that you're tempted by the wrong thing, but you got the wrong kind of wrong thing. And you feel like that you're beyond repair and that you're forever displeasing to God. Listen, you don't need to view this sin any differently than any other. You are not the only one to ever express this level of temptation. None of us could ever be acceptable to God on the basis of our merits and actions. None of us. 
It has never been about us having some natural spiritual cleanliness. It is only in Christ that anyone is righteous in God's sight. And and he finds in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. This is how we get into the righteousness of God, through Jesus Christ. It's not anything on our own merit. There's no natural goodness we have. We are all sinners, separated from God. It is only in Christ that we might become the righteousness of God. So if you're dealing with same-sex attraction, you are not disqualified from God. It does not mean that he will not hear you. And that goes to the second point, and that is this, and that is pray to God about your feelings and attractions. You have a God that will hear you and a God that, that will walk with you through those struggles. Pray to God about feelings and attractions. Pray that God would shine his light on your experience rather than let your experience determine your theology. Listen, change in this life is not promised. So we cannot presume that it could never happen or that it must happen. And what I mean by that is some people with same-sex attraction, it is something they may have to fight through the rest of their life. There are some that as they pray and they go through this that God somehow takes that away from them and they don't have to deal with it anymore. But there are other strong believers who have same-sex attraction and they say, I don't want to give in to the homosexual lifestyle. And I prayed about it and I'm trying to travel this road But I still get those temptations. I still get those feelings. And so it's a day-by-day walk with God. This is where you just got to learn to trust God and trust him day by day. Number three is this. Focus on Jesus. Put your focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus rather than dwell on the sin. I read in one book, it says, A win for Christians struggling with same-sex attraction is not that the temptations would go away, but in the heat of them, Jesus would be prized more and more. Perhaps through the struggles, you can say that these have led you to a deeper appreciation of how unfathomably good God is. We all have battles. And for those with same-sex attraction, a win for them is that when the feelings come, they don't give in to it, but they focus on Jesus and they prize him even more. And he is even more important than those feelings. And number four is seek support of others. Seek support of others. This is something that for many people that struggle with same-sex attraction, it is the last thing. They don't want to tell anybody. They don't feel like they can. And they feel like they're kind of letting their side down by having these feelings or that their Christian friends or their pastor or their Sunday school teacher would reject them and be disappointed in them. But you're never letting anybody down when you share a struggle. You realize that? You're not letting people down when you share a struggle. All of us struggle, and no Christian is designed to struggle alone. And we should never be alone in our struggles. And so you need to be able to seek support and to share that. Now, I share these four things here, and some of you that are sitting out there may look at those and say, well, that just kind of sounds like preacher talk, but I don't really know if it works. Well, it's interesting because when I announced this sermon, the very next day, I received an email from a student that attends a college, not not in this city. And um, when he sent it to me and I read it, I responded back to him and I said, can I read your email to me? I said, I think it best summarizes everything that I'm saying. So, yeah, that would be great. I appreciate it. 
And let me read it. Just kind of put yourself like you're having a conversation. For all my life, I've struggled with same-sex attraction. It's not something I chose. In fact, I wish more than anything that it would be removed from me. I believe what the Bible says about same-sex attraction. That it is a sin outside of God's design. And it is unacceptable in any form, including committed monogamous relationships. And that those who suffer from it must abstain from sexual activity. For a long time, I was too afraid to tell anyone about this. I was so afraid that anyone who found out would treat me differently, that any of my guy friends would be uncomfortable around me. However, I was finally convinced by the Holy Spirit to begin sharing with my closest friends that I struggled, that I, what I struggled with at a retreat with my church at college about a year and a half ago. Since then, I have experienced radical change in my life. For the first time, I fully felt like I was loved by the Lord. All the fears of rejection and ostracism I feared vanished. My closest friends, including the guys, still loved me and they wanted to be around me. In fact, they admired the fact that I had been brave enough to admit something so taboo. The Lord taught me that the sin that gave me so much shame and fear was no different from any other sin I struggled with. And too often Satan would convince me that I was incapable of accomplishing anything for his kingdom because of what I dealt with. When in reality, he saw it as no different from any sin that a person could deal with. Because of my struggles with SSA, uh, same-sex attraction, I have had to come to terms with the fact that I may never get married, something that I've wanted all my life. I'm also severely afraid of being alone as I get older. I fear that my friends will go about their lives and will all eventually get married, leaving me alone. The Lord is teaching me, though, that I cannot depend on the hope of having this removed or of a marriage for happiness. The gospel is all the hope I need. As I continue the fight against my desires, I am learning to see my fight as evidence that the Holy Spirit is renewing me. One of the most integral parts of someone is their sexuality. But the Lord calls us to deny ourselves and follow him. Even though it is hard on some days, I know that there's a higher purpose for my struggles. For my whole life, I have felt as if I was an outsider in the church when it came to this sin. As if people who struggle with homosexuality were those people and someone in the church could never be one. The only occasion when it would be mentioned was in terms of politics and whether or not gay marriage should be legalized. Our sermon next week, okay? All right. <laughs> then he says, my college church talked about it one night last year, and it was so wonderful to experience my church preaching about it. One thing I hope you stress is that to any Christian who is struggling with this, that they are loved, there is hope, and they are not alone. They are loved. There's hope, and they are not alone. Now, this is an email that was sent to me that I didn't ask for from an individual that just bared his heart. This is what we were talking about. This puts a face on homosexuality, puts a face on same-sex attraction of someone that is struggling, but yet is put his focus on Jesus Christ and is taking that, that daily walk. So, as I get ready to wrap up, these two sections, friends and family, how should you respond Friends and family, response to one with same-sex attraction. I'm going to bullet statement some things here. You say, well, Danny, where did you come up with this? 
Myself, Chad, and Kevin Johnson went to a conference, about a two-and-a-half-day conference, uh, put on by the Ethics and Religious Liberty uh, Council um, Commission there in the Southern Baptist Convention. And they had a number of people who were, had been in homosexual lifestyles, those that were struggling with it, and they just opened up and talked about their journey. And these are some of the things they shared. So I said, well, I want to take it from those that have walked this road. Number one, first thing is, as friends and family, you need to love them. You need to love them. It's an individual. And so many times when someone says, I've got this same-sex attraction, we put them off the side. No, you love them. Number two, second is, you keep avenues open for conversation. You always want to keep avenues open for conversation. This is a lonely existence, and they feel alone. And they need someone that loves them that they can talk to, so you want to keep those avenues open for conversation. Now, here's the third one. This is what they said specifically. Do not kick them out of the house. Now, what this refers to is those who've got teenagers, young people uh, that are saying they're struggling with this. Sometimes we don't know what to do. And maybe maybe as a parent, you're just angry and say, well, you can't live here if you're going to be doing that stuff and kick them out of the house. It was amazing that they specifically made that statement, do not kick them out of the house. Now, again, this, this is different. Because uh, someone had talked to you, well, what about someone that they were married and all of a sudden their spouse leaves them and gets involved in a homosexual relationship? And, and am I supposed to bring them back in the family? No, that doesn't relate to that. This is talking about as parents with children that are living under your roof. Uh, don't kick them out of the house. And the last one is this, and that is keep coming back in love. Keep coming back in love. It's not like you can just start the process and say, I'm going to give it a shot. You just got to keep coming back in love, and you've got to love them. Keep the avenues of, of communication open, and as friends and family, you need to be a willing vessel for them to be able to share with you, okay? So what do we do as a church? What should the church's response be uh, to that? Um, before I put up the checklist there, J.D. Greer, who spoke here Thursday night, he made a quote. He says, before being disgusted with someone else's sin, we need to be overwhelmed with our own sin. Before we get disgusted with someone else's sin, we need to be overwhelmed with our own sin. So this is both personally and as a church. There are things that people do that can disgust us. And we can say, ah, just don't know. It's hard for me to deal with that. I tell you, first thing, every one of us, your pastor included, I've got to get to the point to where I am overwhelmed with my own sin. Then once I'm overwhelmed with my own sin, then I'm going to be prepared to deal with others and to help others who are going through difficult struggles. And uh, a man by the name of Peter Hubbard, who's a pastor of North Hills Community Church in Taylor, South Carolina, wrote a book uh, about, about this. And at the very back, he gave four words, he says, is the way that they deal with this situation. And I think it carries a lot of merit. Let me give you his four words. Number one is love. Unconditional love does not mean unconditional approval. You need to understand that. There is love. As a church body, if someone's struggling with same-sex addiction or someone uh, is involved in a homosexual lifestyle, we as a church, we need to love them as individuals. But unconditional love does not mean unconditional approval. Not approval of your lifestyle, but I'm going to love you as a brother or sister in Christ. The second word is here. And that is, listen to their story. Too many times somebody comes in and we're ready to preach to them and throw scripture at them and, and just light them up like a, like a flamethrower. So no, listen to them. 
The key to helping people feel safe about sharing their issues of same-sex attraction is having a culture of openness about the struggles and weaknesses that we all experience in general in the Christian life. Timothy Keller gave a beautiful description of what the church should be. Let me just read. I love this. Churches should feel more like a waiting room for a doctor and less like a waiting room for a job interview. In the latter, we all try to look as competent, as impressive as we can. Weaknesses are buried and hidden. But in a doctor's waiting room, we assume that everyone there is sick and needs help. And this is much closer to the reality of what is going on in church. So as we walk through these doors, let's see ourselves as a waiting room at a doctor's office. Because whenever you sit in there, you know the people who are sitting there are sick. Nobody just hangs out at a doctor's office saying, hey, I want to read the new Highlights uh, magazine here for kids or so. You're in there because you're sick. And guess what, folks? Every one of us sitting in these views, we're here because we're sick. We have got something that we are struggling with. And when we have that type of understanding, then when someone's struggling with same-sex attraction, then we sit and we talk to them and we hear their story. But then number three, the third word is the word speak. And that is that we begin to speak the truth of Christ. We start at the center and then we work out. You don't start with someone's sexuality. You start with the cross and the resurrection. You start with Jesus. You talk about the cross and the resurrection where God reveals himself most fully. Of where he shows his love, his righteousness, his power, his wisdom. And trusting in this God involves giving everything over him, including our messed up sexuality. I start out with God and then I work out. And once someone understands the love of God, then it says, you know, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I need to deny myself. What does that mean? That means to deny all the junk in our lives. And for some that are struggling with same-sex attraction, it means taking that and denying that and following him. And for me, it's something else. And for you, it's something else. And for all we've got, our junk that we need to push aside and then we follow him. You start with the gospel and grace, and then you describe <coughs> how to live in the light of God's grace. And the very last word was live. You got to live it out. You live for God's kingdom. You love, you hear, you speak, and you live it out. Probably one of the best illustrations of how that was lived out happened in June of 2012. On June 16th of 2012, Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A, made the statement that it is God who defines marriage. And there became all kind of a firestone, firestorm of, of opinions and, and uh, haters of Chick-fil-A. And so they had eat-ins, they had kiss-ins, they had all kind of stuff that went on for a couple of weeks. And, and Chick-fil-A was right there at, at, the, at the middle of all this firestorm. And in the midst of that, Dan Cathy did something that was pretty unique. He made a phone call. He contacted Shane Winmeyer. Shane Winmeyer is the leader of the LGBT movement for many years, and he's the founder of an organization called Campus Pride, which is the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, transgender college students. And Shane is the one who initiated the campaign against Chick-fil-A. So Dan Cathy gave him a call, and he called him, not called him to back off, but just to listen to his concerns. 
And so as Shane began to share with him, Dan began to share with him. And over this conversation, they began to learn a little bit more about each other. And they became friends, such good friends, that Dan had Shane be his honored guest at the Chick-fil-A Bowl. <laughs> to come up there and sit with me in Chick-fil-A Bowl. And they interviewed Shane and they said, so tell me about you and Dan. Man, you guys about as opposite could be. Shane commented, he says, you know, we shared about our families. We shared about our growing up. We shared about our views on faith. And he said, I gained a great appreciation for Dan's devout belief in Jesus Christ. And Dan himself expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard that people were being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A. Because they use that almost as a, as a battering ram to be able to treat people that were homosexual unkindly. And Dan regretted that. But he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. And on Dan's Facebook his verse is Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. And what Shane and Dan talked about is they began to build a friendship. And they built a friendship because of how Dan, the believer, initiated this. He could have fought fire with fire. And he could have been seen as a hater in the homosexual community. Or he could have modified his moral convictions to conform to our culture standards. Instead, he refused to allow a nationwide controversy to blind his vision. He saw individuals, not a movement. And he responded with love and not antagonism. And so he's living out the kingdom. That's a great example. He's living out the kingdom. And so church... That's my prayer for us, is that we'll live out the kingdom. And we'll be understanding of those that struggle with same-sex addictions. And for those that are struggling with those, there's a hope for you. And it's not something you've got to keep as a secret, but you need to find some people you can trust and share and have them walk with you through this. I want to close with the way that Peter Hubbard closed his book, and that is this. So for the beautiful name of Jesus, we love, hear, speak, and live no matter how people respond. We seek the glory of God in the advancement of his kingdom, not on our own comfort and agenda. As we live for his glory, the gospel is proclaimed, the homosexual is loved, and the church is transformed. May we pray. Heavenly Father, we know in our culture and our society that there are things that are like elephants in the room. And Father, this is definitely one. It's my prayer that we have been honest to Scripture and hopefully that, uh, Lord, people have heard my heart and hopefully it's communicated your heart. As we begin to move to the conclusion of this service, Lord, I pray that you will take this message and for those that are struggling with same-sex addiction, that you'll begin to open their eyes to see that though the culture may say this is right, God's word says it is not, and it's just going to lead down a destructive path. But yet, Lord, let them know that there is hope and that it could be a long journey. It could be a journey, Father, that, that those feelings and temptations may linger from now throughout all their life. Or, Lord, they may be completely taken away. But I know, Father, they get to make the choice as to what path, what lifestyle 
that they want to travel. And I ask that us that are here, that we will have ears open, hearts prepared to be able to listen to those who come and seek our help and our advice to provide some type of support. Lord, may the church be the church. May we love people as Christ loved us. And may the outside world look at Shades Mountain Baptist Church and know that we stand for the gospel, but yet we have people that love and we love unconditionally. So, Father, I pray that your spirit speaks to each heart. And I pray not only for now, but for the conversations that take place as we walk out from this building. And that those conversations will open up some avenues of honesty, some love, some bridge building, and some healthy direction in life. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.